All right, hope you have already had a wonderful Lord's Day. We've had the opportunity to fellowship together this morning, had time for us to pray together and sing together and worship in the Word. And I hope that was a blessing for you. And now we come this evening uh, to another opportunity for us to, uh, to look at the Word of God. And we're in Titus chapter number 2. This evening we're only going to be looking at verses 6 through 10, but let's go ahead and start in uh, verse number 1 just to get reminded where we've been. We're actually... I'm actually picking up halfway through a paragraph that Adam uh, ended last week, so we're picking up halfway. So let's read the whole section, which is Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When it comes to food, I'm not a person who needs a whole lot of variety in my life. In fact, I didn't grow up with a whole lot of variety in my life. So I'm the guy who eats his hamburgers ketchup only, and uh, I like my milkshakes vanilla, and uh, pretty much everything else the same. And uh, so I don't, mind, I don't mind having the same thing over and over again as well. In fact, I was uh, over with the Harveys, uh, spent some time with them this week, and, and Ken was mentioning that he had to cook for himself for something like I don't, nine or ten years, something like that. It was, it was a while. And, uh, and I told him that if I had to cook my, for myself for any length of time, then I would have eaten three things. I would have had hot dogs and spaghetti and hamburgers. And I didn't mean that I would alternate that. What I meant was I would have a pack of hot dogs uh, for, you know, 12 or however many come in a pack. I would have had that for 12 days in a row. And I would have made a batch of spaghetti, and I would have eaten that for however long it lasted. And then I would have eaten all the hamburgers in the pack and then got, gone back to hot dogs. Uh, I, just don't, I just don't need a lot of variety, and, and I don't really care about variety. And the interesting thing about the passage that we're in this evening uh, is that Paul writes to Titus, and he says, hey, you don't need a lot of variety in your teaching. What you need to do is keep on doing what you've been doing, only this time do it with the younger men. All right? When we get to verse number six, we read, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And in this context, Paul has already been telling Titus that doctrine and lifestyle go hand in hand. All right? That was the theme that really should have come through so powerfully uh, last week. Doctrine um, what we know to be true and then how we live, those, those two aren't separate. We, we're supposed to put them together, all right? Uh, so doctrine and lifestyle go hand in hand, and so you're just supposed to continue that kind of teaching, only this time do it with another group. And tonight's group, the first group we're going to look at, are the younger men. So Paul has already said, here's what you need to teach when it comes to older men. Here's what you need to teach when it comes to older women. Here's what you need to teach when it comes to younger women. All right, he's already addressed these different groups Ways to show them that how they live um, is directly connected to what they believe and the doctrine that they hold dear. And so now we need to ask ourselves, what lifestyle for a younger men goes hand in hand with sound doctrine? All right. What does good theology live like for younger men? All right. What does it look like? What does it live like for the younger men? 
And Paul's going to tell us. We read, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. When you read the word urge, that's a very different word um, than the word that Paul started off this chapter when he said, but as for you, teach. If you remember last week, Adam pointed out that that was, it was kind of a light word. It doesn't have to do with pound the pulpit and, and, uh, and really yell at people. It has the idea more of like, let's, let's discuss this and let me bring you along to the truth. Um, when you get to this word, urge, he's left behind the, the light, pleasant discussion. And this is a powerful, you need to set them straight. You need to get their eyes fixed in the right direction and you need, to, you need to plead with them passionately, all right? So this is urge, a very different word than teach. So he says, you need to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He's, so this group is called the younger men. Obviously, we don't have uh, age brackets for any of these. Uh, it seems like the difference between the older women and the younger women is that the younger women had families, um, kids, husbands, or were at least looking forward to that. So we could probably infer that some of the similar things are true about the younger men uh, in in Paul's day, and especially at Crete. It could have been anybody under the age of of 60, perhaps. Uh, So younger men could be quite a a wide range. But whoever fits in this category of younger men, uh, there's one thing that they need to live out their theology. And the crying need for those who are younger men is that they be self-controlled. Self-controlled. In fact... That is such an important need that that's the only instruction Paul tells Titus. This is the only thing I want you to urge them. And instead of going through a big list like we did last week, we only have one word to look at, and that's self-controlled. So some people say, well, um, maybe that means that uh, maybe that means that Paul didn't have a whole lot to say to the younger men. Maybe their needs weren't as great. I think probably a better way to look at it is uh, there was just one thing that was so important that they had to give themselves to this one thing. This was the one thing. I'm not going to give you a list of 10 things that you have to figure out. I'm just going to tell you one thing. And if you'll just work on this one thing, younger men, then you will live out good doctrine. And so this one thing that you have to be able to do is be self-controlled. It's interesting that Paul has already said that all the other groups, this should be a part of their lives as well. He's already said that older men and women uh, and younger women, they should all be self-controlled. And yet this one particular aspect um, applies particularly to the younger men. And he says, Titus, I want you to urge them. I want you to plead with them to be self-controlled. I want you to plead with them to be disciplined in their minds and in their bodies because this is the one thing that the younger men of Crete so desperately need. They need to be self-controlled. Obviously, This is a a command that is possible for the younger men uh, to keep. All right, self-mastery is a possibility. Otherwise, it'd be impossible for Titus to actually follow this through and urge them to do this. And so self-control is something that is possible for the younger men. Uh, We don't have to say, well, all right, um, when you're a younger person, then, well, you're bound to just sow your wild oats. I mean, that's just kind of a part of being young, uh, the younger guys, they just they just sow their wild oats and then they're they're going to grow out of it. Right. So, I mean, they're undisciplined for a while, but just give them enough time and eventually they'll get over it. What Paul's saying here to Titus is you need to tell them they need to be self-controlled and they need to be self-controlled right now. Uh, there's no period of, of sowing wild oats that fits within living out the gospel. Um, if you're a younger man, what what we need, what I need is to be self-controlled. All right. That is Paul's single command. And so sound doctrine and younger men looks like only one thing. It looks like self-control. So last week we looked at sound doctrine and older men and older women 
and younger women. This week, sound doctrine and younger men, it just looks like self-control. Paul goes on in verse number seven, and he continues, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Apparently, as Paul is continuing this discussion about younger men, he goes to talk to, to Titus. And so apparently, in Paul's perspective, Titus fits within this younger man category. All right? and, and Paul has some specific instructions for Titus. And he says, I want you to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Paul is asking Titus here to be an example. And there's great power in this example. Um, Paul assumes it. Unlike the false teachers whose lives were directly opposed to the message, Titus's life should affirm the message. All right? This was a stark contrast to the false teachers. And there just seems to be something about us by nature that we tend to be, we tend to be imitators. And that's something that's true about all of us. It's certainly true uh, about kids when they're younger. Uh, it's one of the things that's kind of cute or kind of fun about having young kids. I'm enjoying that right now uh, with my son Silas. It's fun when he imitates me. Uh, it's fun when he imitates me on things that are good, all right? I'm, and I'm not looking forward to the day when he imitates some of my not good traits or some of my bad habits, all right? For now, it's fun that he wants to imitate me when it comes to um, the other day he prayed for the first time because he's seen daddy pray and uh, he's seen daddy read his Bible, so he wants to sit on the couch and read his Bible. You know, it's cute and it's fun. We like kids. They're imitators. But that's true about all of us. We, we tend to imitate. And so, and so Paul says, look, Titus, you need to be aware that you need to be an example. You need to show yourself. This is a very clear, you're going to live this out. People are watching. And as a younger man, you need to show yourself to be a model of good works. The, the church at Crete um, had plenty of dead models, those who had gone on before, those in Scripture. But Paul says, Titus, you need to be a living model for them. They need to see that, that there is a younger man who can live with self-control and be an example for them. This idea of example, obviously, it's a common one uh, in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, you're supposed to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All right, so as much as Paul imitated Christ, we should imitate Paul. Uh, he also gave this exact same uh, command to Timothy, which we've already studied, although it's been a little while. 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. All right. Now, you might be asking yourself a question. Uh, maybe you're not, but let me ask you for you. Uh, why does Paul go from addressing the young men to addressing Titus? All right. Why does Paul go from talking to the young man, to talking to Titus? And the answer is, that's a nasty trick question from Pastor David. Uh, Paul hasn't switched talking uh, who he's talking to. This whole time, he's been talking to Titus, all right? We started in verse number one, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he's just explained, this is what you should be teaching, the old men, the old women, the younger women. And now he's just explaining, this is what you should be teaching the younger men. And so Paul is just continuing to talk to Titus like he has been throughout the whole passage, all right? And you'll see why that's important in just a moment. But we need to realize that this whole section has been Paul talking to Titus, telling him how to treat these various groups. And so he says, you need to tell the young men to be self-controlled, but you need to do more than just tell. You also need to show. And this is the only group where, where Paul says you specifically need to show, all right? It says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. 
that in all respects is actually uh, a very interesting uh, phrase because in the grammar, it could actually go back in verse number six. And, and so people argue about this. Uh, it, it could say, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled in all respects, period. Show yourself to be a model of good works. All right. And, and both of those are equally possible when it comes to grammar. And that always makes for a difficult decision when there isn't something that is just right there that tells you. Some people say, man, poor, the poor younger men, it only says self-controlled. Uh, it's such a short verse. We should probably go ahead and put the in all respects back with that one because they need a little extra. I mean, it's so short. Younger men should be self-controlled. Let's go ahead and make the point. You need to be self-controlled in all respects. And so that's, that's probably where it belongs. And besides that, when it says show yourself to be a model of good works, it's very clear that yourself is where the stress and the emphasis is. So how do we know where this goes? Well, one way we know how this goes is simply that people have made an interpretive choice. And in this case, I think it's, it's a fine interpretive choice to say, show yourself in all respects. Because clearly, if the younger men are self-controlled, uh, they're not going to be self-controlled in one area. And Paul says, and, and don't worry about any of the others. He's not saying, just be self-controlled in this one tiny area. That's a, that's a very broad, encompassing, be self-controlled. All right. So we could go either way with it, but what we have before us in the ESV is perfectly acceptable and, and I think appropriate for us to know that Paul is saying, Titus, you need to show yourself in every way. I mean, this is the one that really needs clarified and expanded. All right, the younger men should be self-controlled. Okay, that, that's clear. But, but Titus, you need to know that you need to show yourself in every single way to be a model. So not just when it comes to your self-control, but in everything else. Titus, you need to go above and beyond, and as a, as a person that fits in younger man, you need to show yourself in every way a model of good works. So it's not list limited to self-control. Titus is supposed to be an example, and that is a necessary part of his pastoral role. If you went into Adam's office uh, right now, uh, when you walk in and you look over to the left, uh, there is a framed picture uh, with several different things in it, and uh, it has one of his heroes and mine in it, Robert Murray McShane. And you would read a little quote that's hanging there in, in Adam's office. Robert Murray McShane said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And that hangs in Adam's office as a reminder to him, as well as a reminder to me of this exact thought from this passage. You are supposed to show yourself to be a model of good works. Because the great need in the church, especially for the younger men, is to see an example that is lived out of holiness. That is the crying need. Paul says, Titus, what do you need to do when it comes to being a pastor? You need to show yourself to be a model, to be an example. That is his great need. But it's not just limited to his example, not just limited to, to how he lives. It's also, Paul's going to go on to say, it matters how you talk. He says, show yourself in all respects to be model of good works and in your teaching. And now he's going to add some further thoughts. All right, Titus, you're supposed to be an example in your teaching uh, or in your life, but also in your teaching. And in that teaching, he says, you are supposed to show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. He starts with integrity. The idea of integrity is that is that is that Titus's teaching would be free from corruption it, it could certainly include the content, but I think this word particularly focuses our attention on the motive 
of Titus's teaching. Titus's teaching should be free from the corruption of unbiblical motivation. It should, it should have integrity. His ministry, like Paul's, should stand up to the test of whether he had money or didn't have money, whether he was loved or unloved. His ministry should be marked by integrity. That's what his teaching would be like. It also says that his teaching should show, should demonstrate dignity. All right, integrity, dignity. The idea of dignity is actually where it talks about seriousness or inspiring respect. It has to do with the manner of his teaching. All right, so this word clearly isn't talking about what he's teaching. It's clearly talking about how he's teaching. And very clearly, how his teaching should be is it should be marked by dignity. There, there is a right and appropriate amount of seriousness and sobriety that should have marked Titus's ministry that should continue to mark pastoral ministry today. Again, this is not, this is not Paul being a killjoy, um, just like he told the older men to be sober-minded, and that doesn't mean that they never laugh and they never enjoy themselves. Yet Paul is making a point here, and that is that, that Titus's concern for doctrine is not a frivolous, happy concern. He is rather marked by a seriousness about what he knows to be true. He's marked by a seriousness of declaring that doctrine. Uh, this is something that is valuable, and he has a grasp of that value. And so far from treating doctrine as, as trivial and as light, far from making light of it, Titus, you're supposed to have dignity when it comes to your teaching, a seriousness, a sobriety. And we live... We live in a day, uh, obviously, that doctrine itself is under a lot of attack. Preaching itself is under a lot of attack. And unfortunately, one of the ways that attack has shown itself has been in an, in an attitude of frivolity or, or of being trite, um, of not approaching the teaching time with the appropriate seriousness. Um, this is a genuine concern in our day, just like it was in Paul's mind. And so his particular instruction to young Titus was, you need to be serious about your teaching. What, how you say what you say is extremely important. So you're supposed to show integrity, have the right motive. You're supposed to show dignity, have the right manner. And then in verse number eight, and you should have sound speech that cannot be condemned. All right. And this sound speech, uh, just the same as sound doctrine that Paul has elsewhere talked about, has the idea of the healthy doctrine, the right doctrine. You should have persuasive, well-thought-out, wholesome, true speech. And when it says sound speech that cannot be condemned, it's kind of picturing a courtroom scene. And when it says cannot be condemned, it has the picture of a judge who's, who's sitting on his seat, and, and the, the lawyers have made, uh, the, the prosecution has made all of, their, all of their claims, they've presented their argument, um, they, they've made all of their rebuttals, they've said all they're going to say, and the judge reflects on all of the information, and then he goes, there's no way that we can condemn this guy. The, the, verd the evidence is so small. Um, he, everything looks so good for him. He is not to be condemned. And that's what Paul says about Titus' teaching. It should, it should not be able to be condemned. So when people hold it up for scrutiny and, and they attack it, and he's not saying that they're not going to do that. He's just saying that when they do, what should come out the other end is... Man, we can't shoot this down. This is true. This is right. We cannot condemn this according to the principles of the word of God. And that's what Paul says, Titus, your teaching should be as a young man. In your teaching, you should have integrity. You should have dignity and sound speech. And all of that means that it cannot be condemned. And there's a purpose for that. 
and I think this is important throughout this whole section, uh, even as we've studied last week, and really this whole section is about a purposeful righteousness, right? There's always a reason that these righteous things need to be part of our lives. And here's the reason for the younger men, specifically for Titus, uh, to have this kind of lifestyle, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That word opponent, perhaps in, in your uh, if you don't have an ESV tonight, uh, perhaps yours is plural. It actually is a single, uh, single word. In fact, some people have looked at that and they've said, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Uh, I don't think that's actually the best uh, way of understanding an opponent. It's not saying he's not talking about the devil. What he's doing when he says singular, he's saying anyone who's there. All right. Anyone who's there in the church in Crete, if there's an opponent, and perhaps Paul has a very particular person in mind, because we know he's already addressed certain false teachers, he might be thinking of somebody who is opposing Titus, and he says, what I want you to do is have sound speech so that, that's a reason, so that an opponent may be put to shame. What does that mean to be put to shame? It means that, that when his accusation is compared against the truth, the accusation is shown to be false. And he's shamed because his accusation was totally wrong. He, he, was, he was the one in error and not Titus. And so he's put to shame. If that weren't the case, if that opponent were not put to shame, then they would have something evil to say about, what does it say? About us. And so Paul is linking himself to Titus's ministry. And he says, look, if, if you do not have sound speech and you say things that are condemnable, it actually is a poor reflection on us. In other words, on Paul, on his own, on his apostolic missionary team. It's a total insult to the whole leadership team, including Paul and his apostolic authority. So there are massive ramifications if Titus does not have sound speech. But the reason that he should is that the opponent may be put to shame and not have anything evil to say about Paul, about the missionary team, about the gospel. Right? There's a reason that Titus should live the way he should live as a self-controlled, exemplary young man. And we really need to note the contrast um, between the false teachers and Titus. All right? Chapter 1 told us that the false teachers deceive and lie, and they reject the truth for dishonest gain. And in contrast, Titus was supposed to teach with integrity. That was the very first thing. And so instead of lying and deceiving and teaching for dishonest gain, his, his teaching should be marked by the right motives, by integrity. All right, Titus 1 also tells us that the false teachers were empty talkers. In contrast, Titus was supposed to be dignified, serious, have some weight with things that you're trying to say. Don't be an empty talker. And lastly, first, uh, the first chapter of Titus told us that the false teachers were corrupted and denying God. They were, that the very nature of their teaching was corrupted and unhealthy. And in contrast to that, Titus's teaching would, should be sound. He should have sound speech. The content should be right. As a, as a younger man, Paul is, Paul is writing to Titus in the younger man category, and he says, you need to model and teach the kind of righteousness that comes, that accords, that goes hand in hand with sound doctrine. And the more Titus would model and teach that kind of doctrine, the more the church would follow. And if the church would follow Titus's teaching and his example, then they would deal with the false teachers that are in their midst. How are those false teachers going to get dealt with? They were going to get dealt with by Titus being the young man that he should be, being an example and a teacher, and by the rest of the church following him in his example. And so the Cretan church would start following the model that they're presented, 
And that imitation would lead to them identifying and confronting and eliminating the error that was in their midst. All right? And this is how the whole church together, as they learned and lived what kept with sound doctrine, would eliminate the error that was in their midst. And all that is part of what Paul is trying to accomplish as he encourages Titus in his work. All right? So we've, we've seen sound doctrine in younger men. We're going to move on now to the last category tonight, and that is sound doctrine and slaves. Read in verse number nine. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The very first word in, in chapter 9 is easy for us to, I think it could be easy for us to kind of breeze over uh, or to minimize when it says slaves, all right? Uh, it's been uh, very much outside of our realm of thinking, uh, even for those of you that might fit into the older man uh, category, uh, to, to have any personal contact with the idea of slaves. And, and yet what we had in Rome was a whole system that was pretty much built on slavery. In fact, uh, some historians estimate that there were more slaves in the Roman Empire than there were free men. All right? This was a normal part of life. And slaves could be anything uh, from a doctor and a lawyer that was very well educated uh, and had a very high level of work. Uh, to the most common, menial, mistreated, uh, used, and then discarded kind of slave that you might be thinking of. And so when we get to this passage, um, there's something interesting to note. And what's interesting to note is Paul's complete lack of a political and social agenda when it comes to slaves. Uh, Paul's instruction here to slaves uh, just assumes that there are slaves, and then he tells them how to live as slaves. And he doesn't say anything about leaving their condition of being slaves. And that's caused no small amount of angst for a lot of commentators uh, that, that you might read today, that I might have read uh, recently. And, uh, and they suggest a great number of reasons that Paul didn't deal with slavery and call for its overthrow. Um, everything from the pragmatic, pragmatic argument, they knew that, that it would never work to try to overthrow all the slaves, and so Paul just didn't try to do it. Um, they argue from like a greater good argument, well, if, they, if he got rid of slaves, then the whole fabric of their society would have crumbled, and so it was better to just let the status quo continue and work itself out, and, and so it was for the greater good. Uh, some people want to downplay what a slave really was and say, man, well, it was just educated and independent people. We're not talking slavery as in, like, the kind of slavery that we wouldn't like and appreciate. Uh, because modern sensibilities just, just don't want to put up with the idea of slavery. Uh, we live in a day, um, and... and a lot, of, a lot of ways rightfully in our country that has stood against uh, the evils that might come along with slavery. Um, and so a lot of times we kind of import that thought into, into the New Testament, and we want to excuse Paul. Like, we got to find a reason that Paul wasn't on a social campaign here, all right? I think far from excusing Paul, uh, we need to embrace what he's saying. Because what Paul is saying in these verses is that these people's socioeconomic state was no threat to living the gospel, no threat whatsoever. In fact, Paul's point will be that their condition can magnify and further the gospel. And so far from saying get rid of slavery, Paul is saying you need to use your slavery. And you need to live out sound doctrine in your slavery. He's not at all trying to overthrow it. He's trying to tell them how to be a Christian in the midst of it. 
And we're going to lose the point of the power and the greatness of the gospel uh, if, if, if we get off on these tangents about why slavery was evil and why Paul should have gotten rid of it. Paul's making a very clear point. There are slaves and you need to be Christians in your slavery. What, what does that look like? What does it look like if you're a slave to live in a way that goes hand in hand with sound doctrine? Right. This is what it looks like. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. That be submissive is the idea of submitting yourselves. Uh, you submit yourself and you should do it to your own master, just like um, Paul talked to in Ephesians about wives submitting to their own husbands. Uh, slaves don't just be submissive to everyone. Be submissive to your own master. This is this is in their kitchen. This is in their face. This is you and your master. You be submissive. You submit yourself to him and you're supposed to do it in everything. All right. Paul doesn't put a great limit on here. He just says you, you need to be submissive in all ways. That's also caused a lot of argument because people have always said, well, what happened if a master uh, told them to do something that was unbiblical? Paul here says you should be submissive in everything. So therefore, he was giving them license to sin. All right. Uh, obviously, we have other scripture that would contradict that. We know that even children are to obey their parents. What? In the Lord. All right. Uh, we know that wives are supposed to be submissive to their husbands in the Lord. All right. There, there are limits. Uh, obviously, God is the highest ruler. No master is the highest ruler. And yet Paul's point is not at all overthrow your human master so you can serve your heavenly master. His point is you be submissive to your earthly master and do it in everything. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to see it in just a second. He says, slaves, you are to be well-pleasing. That word well-pleasing is only used elsewhere in the New Testament for pleasing God. This is the only place that talks about being pleasing to a person. Everywhere else it talks about pleasing God. And it's a little bit unfortunate the way we have our, our translation in, e, in the ESV because it, it looks like if, you, if you're reading slaves be submissive to their own masters and everything, colon, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. It looks like he's making a list of, of three things that they're supposed to do, right? Um, they're supposed to be well-pleasing. They're supposed to be not argumentative. And they're supposed to be not pilfering, all right? That's kind of how it looks like in English. Now, the problem with that is that idea of being well-pleasing is a direct description of what it means to be submissive, all right? It's, it's directly tied in the grammar to what it is to be submissive. So when he says, what does it look like to be submissive to your own master and everything? It means to be well-pleasing, all right? Those things are equal. Be submissive, be well-pleasing. Those things should be joined by an equal sign in your brain, all right? So um, this isn't the first of a list of three things. It's a description. What it means to be submissive is to be well-pleasing to your master. You, you do on what would bring him joy, your submission is not a begrudging, well, I have to do this, and so I will. It's actually my desire is to be well-pleasing to my master. That was the attitude the slave was supposed to have, all right? So it was a willing, joyful, joyful submission, and the goal of it was, I'm going to please this person in every way that I possibly can. And then he adds these two specific commands. First of all, he says, not argumentative. So I don't want you to talk back when they tell you to do something. Uh, don't say, I don't want to do it. Uh, don't, be, don't be arguing. Uh, just do what you're supposed to do. So that's the first one, not argumentative. Second, not pilfering. Not pilfering. Maybe not a word we use all the time, but this is a, this is a great word. I'm so thankful for this translation because this is exactly what the word is. It, this isn't like extortion and stealing. It has the idea of like petty theft, of, of stealing a little here and stealing a little there. That's the idea of pilfering. I, I take someone who's not looking. Uh, I grab myself a little bit of food. I grab myself a little bit of money. 
Uh, I take a little more that's not mine. It doesn't have the idea of, not the idea of I'm robbing him blind. It has the idea of I'm taking here, I'm taking there. And a lot of times people would ease their conscience. I mean, it's, it's not like I'm taking everything away from my master. It's just a little bit after all. Uh, Paul says, look, Titus, you need to tell those guys that that is not an acceptable part. That's not what a slave who lives out sound doctrine looks like, someone who's pilfering, someone who's taking a little bit here and a little bit there. Instead, you should be showing all good faith. And that word faith is, is not showing the faith of the gospel. It means showing all good faithfulness is, is probably a better way of looking at faith. So you should, you should be proving yourself to be trustworthy is the idea. So slave, show yourself to be trustworthy. And now, again, we come to the point. Because remember, this is purposeful obedience throughout this whole passage. Why should a slave live this way? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the reason. So that in every way you live, slave, you may adorn. Has the idea of you, you make beautiful, like setting up some jewels and shining them so that everyone can see, putting them on a nice display. You need to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And that's, that's an interesting little phrase too because we don't normally think in terms of God our Savior. We normally think in terms of Christ, our Savior, and yet this is a term that Paul has already used in Titus. He's already talked back in chapter 1 um, about God who is the Savior, and now he uses that phrase again, the doctrine of God, our Savior. And it emphasizes for us where this doctrine comes from and the seriousness of this doctrine. Right? This is the doctrine of God, the God who is your Savior. And slaves, you need to care about how you make that doctrine look. And that was... Paul's command to Titus as he was instructing the slaves. Now, before we rush off to application and we start thinking about employers and employees, uh, what you need to do first is to consider what Paul was saying about the gospel and its power and its intended results. Because I think it's easy for us when we read slaves, uh, we really want to apply this passage when we think about what it means for us. Uh, and so a lot of times we go, okay, we don't have slaves anymore, uh, but I have a boss. And so I'm just going to inject that in, in this verse, and I'm going to say, um, employer who has a boss, be submissive, uh, be pleasing to him, don't argue with them, and don't steal. All right? Uh, that would be easy for us to do at this point. And yet, what we need to get is the full weight of the original application that Paul had for these people. What is the full weight? The full weight of this is that the gospel changed the lowest in the society. And, and it changed people who were trapped in a bleak and hopeless situation. And instead of giving them liberty to say, I'm a Christian now, I can get out of the slavery thing. Instead, it taught them how to be a slave from God's perspective. So far from liberating them, it actually taught them, here's how you adorn the doctrine of God in your situation. The point is that if the gospel does this even for slaves, it teaches them how to live in a hopeless and many times miserable and abusive and hurtful situation. If the gospel can do that for slaves, then it must be a wonderful gospel. This doctrine must be glorious. It must be great. We need to remember that this is Crete with all of its stereotypes, with all of its sinfulness. And Paul is here commanding right conduct from people who were abused and mistreated and had no rights. They had no Roman citizen rights. Paul commands right conduct of them, but he gives them right conduct for a reason. And all throughout this section, Paul has been caring about the motivation and the methods of how you live righteously. And, and the motivation for all of these groups 
that we have looked at, whether old men or old women or younger women and younger men and even slaves, the right motivation is this doctrine of God our Savior. It is the right doctrine. It is the gospel. And interestingly enough, that's also the power. That's also the method of how to live rightly. How can young men learn to be self-controlled? We go back to verse number one. As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It is sound doctrine that is the pathway for young men to become self-controlled. It's not some program. Uh, it's, not, it's not some, some study group. Uh, it's, it's not some uh, big ring of accountability, although those could be helpful parts of the component. Um, what, what is going to make young men be self-controlled is going to be sound doctrine. What's, what's going to make the older men be dignified and sound in faith is going to be the doctrine. What is going to help older women to be reverent and to be able to teach the younger ones. Uh, it doesn't say that older women, by their experience, are able to teach the younger ones. It says, as they have sound doctrine, they are able to teach those who are younger. How are the younger women uh, going to know how it is that they should treat their husbands? how they should be kind and submissive. Well, they're going to be driven by the gospel and the sound doctrine that was passed to them. So the right motive and the right power for the right living is the gospel. This is a doctrinal argument for how we live. And the point of talking to slaves is that our lives can add luster or they can add insult to the gospel. That's the point of telling slaves, here's how you should live in your slavery. Because you, slave, can actually make the gospel look great. Or you can choose to argue and pilfer and not be submissive, and you actually bring discredit on the gospel. And that, that point is true for all of us today. Not in any condition of slavery, and yet it is equally true for us that, that we can actually hinder sound doctrine. We can actually make the gospel not look as glorious by the way we live in our own situation. So let me just give you a couple thoughts of, of application from this passage. All right. First of all, our young men need to be urged towards self-control. And they need to be urged towards self-control with sound doctrine. That is the mechanism for teaching, for teaching self-control. That's how we're going to get there. So we need to care about song, sound doctrine. And we need young men to be urged to be self-controlled. They need to be confronted with their need. I need to be confronted with my need. We need to be confronted with our need to be self-controlled as younger men. All right? That's one thing to think about as a church. Secondly, our pastors need to do the urging, uh, just like Titus was instructed to do the urging. And yet, simultaneously, the leadership of Grace Church needs to provide an example in life and in teaching. I mean, this is, this is a primary application from this passage. Just like Titus was supposed to be an example, the leadership of your church needs to be an example in how we live and in how we teach, both the content and the motivation and even the manner that we teach with. So this is yet another sobering and demanding passage for Adam and for me and for Dave Muxlow, uh, for Andy and, Daniel who are, Andy and Daniel who are considering becoming pastors. Uh, this is another passage that, that raises the bar and says this is what a real leader is supposed to do. This is what he's supposed to be. This is the demand that's on a leader. And you say, all right, I'm tracking with that. I'm glad that all that's very pointed at you. Um, but, but what about me? Well, one thing that you can do is you can pray that your leadership will provide this kind of consistent example. All right? You can pray in this direction. This passage informs you what a leader is supposed to look like. And so 
you can pray that this is what your leaders will live like. It also gives you a way to evaluate and consider leaders. This is, this is what we should match. Um, we should match someone who, who models in every respect good works and has teaching that fits within this rubric of integrity, dignity, and sound speech. So you can pray for and you can encourage right motives, a healthy sobriety, and biblically airtight teaching from your pastors. You can pray in that direction. You can encourage in that direction. You can expect in that direction because that is a biblical expectation. All right, thirdly, our lives together need to point to the glory and the greatness of the gospel. And this was, um, this principle comes directly from Paul's instruction about the slaves. Your lives and my lives need to point to the glory and greatness of the gospel in our own situations. So I think a good place for us to start is to ask ourselves, do we really know? Do we really believe? Do we really rejoice in the power and the greatness of the gospel? How, how are we doing at meditating on the greatness of the gospel? Is it a habit for you in, in the books that you read or in the songs that you listen to or in the sermons that you hear? For you to meditate, to think on the greatness of the gospel. Or is the gospel something that we tend to just shove aside to, well, the gospel is what I believed back then when I became a Christian. And now I'm busy living out my Christian life and doing my Christian thing. What we need to remember is that meditating on sound doctrine and especially the sound doctrine of the gospel is the right, the right method for how we're going to change. And it's the right content for how we're going to change. We need to meditate daily, constantly on the greatness of the gospel. And we live in a day when there are so many resources to help us do that. I mean, there are so many books um, that you can read. Uh, I brought one tonight um, just because I wanted to hold it up and be able to show you. I mean, this is a book uh, by a pastor named C.J. Mahaney, who we love and appreciate, called The Cross-Centered Life. All right. This is one of those uh, little books. I mean, it's 81 pages and there are even these little like quarter pages. You could read this book. You could even take your time reading through this book for a month. And as you read this, it will draw your attention to the glory and the greatness of the gospel and how it touches everyday life. In fact, if you want this book at the end of tonight, I'll even let you borrow my copy. All right. So if, if you want to read this book in the next month, you can come get it. There are many more like this. I have many more in my office. There are many more we could recommend. There are limitless resources when it comes to meditating on the greatness and the glory of the gospel. Uh, there are songs that we can listen to. I hope that's something you're enjoying in our services. We, we want very much to sing songs that are doctrinal and intentional about the glory and the greatness of the gospel. Because if our lives are going to point to the glory and greatness of the gospel, then it's got to be something that just saturates our minds and sits in our way of thinking. And so it's, it's in the books we read and it's in the songs that we sing. And, and we're listening to sermons that are just saturated with the gospel so that when we hear the gospel, our heart responds to it and says, yes, that's true. That's, that's what I want to live. This, this matches with sound doctrine and it's going to change my every day, just like it should have changed, changed life for the slaves. All right. Secondly, do we show with our lives how great the gospel is? All right. Do we know it? And then secondly, do we show it? Ask yourself, does my life consistently bring credit or does it bring discredit to the gospel? How am I doing in public when it comes to giving credit to the gospel? How, how am I doing in private? Is there a big difference between my private life where I really show what I actually think about the gospel and, and what I'm doing in public? 
What are some habits or some attitudes or some speech patterns or what are some thoughts that are actually bringing shame to the gospel that even right now come to your mind and you say, this is something I need to deal with. I need to confess this. I need to forsake this. It's not bringing glory to the gospel and to sound doctrine. Is the true power and glory of the gospel evident in our lives day in and day out? We need to identify areas where we're failing. Um, we need to confess that. We need to forsake that. We need to ask for grace to change. We need to renew our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. We can ask others in the body to join us in prayer and encouragement that we would do a better job of living out our lives that bring credit, that bring glory, that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Because this, this is necessary for all of us in this room tonight, that, that we would work hard at making the gospel look glorious in how we live. Because all throughout this section, Paul has been telling Titus, you need to teach what, what accords, what goes hand in hand with sound doctrine. And there's a very real reason. There is a purpose for us to teach what keeps with sound doctrine. So we need to ask God for the grace to, to live this out. Um, no matter what category you might find yourself in specifically in this passage, the principle remains true for all of us. How we live out sound doctrine will either bring credit or discredit the gospel we claim to love and to share. All right, let's all pray together. Father, we are grateful for another passage from Titus. Um, we are thankful for Paul's pastoral heart and how we get to um, learn from these inspired words. And I pray that you would give us grace um, to, to live out sound doctrine. And we know we cannot do this in our own strength, and that's the reason we have the gospel of grace. I pray you'd help us to depend on you this week as we continue to pursue change in our hearts and lives. I pray that um, for, for all the people here in whatever various situations they find themselves, that they would, they would be busy about considering how sound doctrine uh, should affect how they live even this week. Give us the grace to, to not just theologize and not just theorize about the truth of Scripture. Give us the grace to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.